I just want to say to all of you dads, you are warriors out there. You who are taking care of kids, you who are providing for families, you who are uh, loving grandkids, you are warriors, every one of you. And uh, speaking of warriors, I, I took a snapshot of a warrior one time. Well, actually, my wife Jody did. We were taking uh, our youngest son, Logan, to a WWE match in Springfield, Illinois, several years ago, and Randy Orton was there. And uh, we were kind of watching this with, with Logan and enjoying it, and I, I thought uh, Logan was our big WWE fan, but it was my wife, Jody that seemed really interested in Randy Orton probably because of his warm personality and stunning intellect, I think. I don't, I'm not sure, but whatever the case, he jumped up on the ropes, he flexed for the crowd, and then he decimated one of the other wrestlers. I don't even remember his name. He was a warrior, or at least he played one on TV. And I wonder even for you today, as you think about that idea of a warrior, who comes to mind when you think of a warrior? Uh, If you're watching on Facebook this morning, you can even throw up some answers this morning, put some out there for us to consider. Who do you think of or what do you think of when you think of a warrior? Uh, Maybe for you, you know, uh, again, to to harken back to WWE times, you remember way back when the Road Warriors, there are about three of you that will remember them. Maybe that comes to mind, a warrior or the uh, Golden State Warriors, the NBA basketball team. You can tell I'm missing sports right now. That's what's coming to mind for me. Or maybe even Patty Smith comes to mind for like one of you who shooting at the walls of heartache, bang, bang, she sang in 1984, I am a warrior. Again, the one of you who remember that, I hope you enjoyed that. Maybe that's who you think of when you think of warrior. I don't know. Who, who do you think of? Uh, you can throw some of those on Facebook. Uh, some of you here, let's see, are saying things like soldiers, obviously, our, our, our military. Uh, we remember them. Uh, maybe some others come to mind. Maybe you think of Mad Max from the movies. You remember the Road Warrior? Or uh, maybe even the iconic Western warrior, John Wayne, the Duke. Maybe that comes to mind when you think of warrior. What do you think of? Doctors, some of you mentioned, of course. Lots of different people come to mind. David, in the age of the Bible, a warrior, a warrior poet. Teachers, nurses. (laughs) Thank you, Ellen Collins, for you being the one person that remembered Patti Smith from 1984. I appreciate that. (laughs) Firefighters, police officers, EMTs. Some really great, great pictures of people who are are warriors on our behalf, just like the scriptures talk about. Because you see, in the Bible, no matter what we sort of think of when we we think of warriors, we think uh, of God as a warrior. Trimper Longman writes this, he says, Virtually every book of the Bible, Old and New Testaments, and almost every page tells us about God's warring activity. Think about Israel coming out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt in the Exodus. Moses saying after the end of that, he says in Exodus 15, The Lord is a warrior. Yahweh is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. Or even David, as we mentioned a moment ago, he shouted to Goliath in that iconic moment, He says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. 
Or Isaiah the prophet would also add this picture. He says the Lord will march out like a champion, like a warrior. He will stir up his zeal with a shout. He will raise the battle cry and will triumph over his enemies. God is a warrior. And so this morning, I want to continue in our, our Polaroid summer series as we look at some different psalms, at some of the different snapshots of God. And today, I want to look at Psalm 80. So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to, to open up there with us this morning. Psalm 80, particularly in verse 19, has this snapshot that I want to highlight. It simply says, Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Now, at first glance, that may not seem too warrior-like, but when you uh, consider the translation, it gets a little sharper. Lord God Almighty translates, uh, the word Almighty translates a Hebrew word, uh, Zebaot, which means hosts or armies. It it pictures God as the God of hosts, the God of uh, a warrior commander over the cosmic forces, a a God who has angel armies surrounding him. And, And ever since creation, God has been that kind of warrior, striding into battle against chaos in creation. We get that picture. It's almost the first picture we get of God in Genesis 1. Now, of course, other ancient Near Eastern religions had pictures of their gods in much the same way. That was a very uh, common story in the ancient world. In the the Mesopotamian world, for instance, they had this storm god named Marduk. And he led an army of deities against uh, Tiamat, the goddess of of chaos and the the ocean and the deep. And and they went to battle with each other and Marduk won the battle. In fact, in the ancient stories, uh, he even ripped Tiamat in two and the one half of Tiamat became the, the earth and the other became the heavens. That was their story, a bloody story of creation. Or the Canaanites had a story of sort of warrior gods. Baal was the warrior king over their, their gods. But it wasn't always that, that way. Yom, the god of the sea in their ancient history, wanted that position. But then Baal took exception to that. They battled with each other. Baal won and he became the, the leader of the Canaanite pantheon, this warrior god. That was their stories. And yet, Yahweh God is the warrior king over all of them. We even get some of that same imagery in the Bible to describe him. After all, in Genesis 1, this God, this warrior God, with a word, separates the sea, the yom in Hebrew, the waters below and the waters above. Psalm 74, he smashes the heads of sea dragons. This is a God who, with a word, calms the chaos of creation and sits as Lord over it all, the God who defeats the powers against him. Now, sometimes those powers against him are his own people. In his covenant with Israel, of course, God promised that as the people obeyed and lived into and trusted him in their part of the covenant, that God would fight for them, even militarily, against their enemies. And that happened over and over again. But then also, if they rebelled against God, if they did not keep their part of the covenant, then God would fight against them. God fights for his people and against his people. And maybe this morning that's where you're at. Maybe that's the question on the tip of your tongue. Is this warrior God fighting for me or against me? Is he on my side or is he on the side of my enemies? And maybe if we boil that down even smaller, maybe the question in each of us is, do I matter to God? Will he fight for me? How would you answer that question this week, honestly? Can you, like Jeremiah the prophet, say something like this? 
But the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior, so my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. Or this week, do you feel a little bit more like Job, who once said again and again, God bursts upon me, he rushes at me like a warrior. There have been so many rumblings of this over the past few weeks, and the question seems to hang in the air Who matters? Do black lives matter? Do police matter? Maybe this morning you're wondering, do I matter? And with that question lingering in our minds, we hope God fights for us. And so we turn to Him with this plea, Psalm 80, verses 1 through 3. This this plea to God is to stir up your strength. Look at what the text says. Starting in verse 1, Psalm 80. Hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth between Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, awaken your might. Underline that phrase. We'll talk about that in a second. Come and save us. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Now, put yourself in their shoes, the people of Israel had begun to flirt with the other gods of the nations. Baal, in fact. And yet, the powerful nation of Assyria came knocking at their door. The the military superpower of the 8th century BC. And they swept into the northern part of Israel and they decimated the people. Thousands of people were murdered in battle. Thousands more fled south as refugees into uh, the neighboring country of Judah. And those people of Judah and those refugees of Israel, countrymen together, began to formulate a response through the years as to what had happened to them, and it became Psalm 80 that we have in front of us. And it's jarring for us to read, at least for me, because I begin with verse 1, this picture of God as a shepherd, and I think to myself, wait, if God is acting like a shepherd, then why in the world do the people have to beg Him to come and save them? And the answer is simple, because they weren't experiencing God like a shepherd. They felt like God had abandoned the flock. In essence, they know he's enthroned between the cherubim. He's on a throne of angel armies. But is he going to come to help? And so they beg him to awaken his might, that phrase, to stir up his strength, his energy. There's no doubt that the warrior God has the power The only doubt they have is, will he use it for them? Or will he use it against them? Will they see his smile? Or will they continue to see his frown? The question is, does this warrior God fight for us or against us? It's a question that continues to linger through the ages over and over again. And sometimes it catches us unaware Robert certainly wasn't expecting the question. Uh, Robert was born in 1735 in England. Robert Robinson was his name, had a loving family, had a warm childhood until the age of eight, and his dad died. His family reeled. Now, his grandfather was a wealthy man, but he had always been upset that his daughter had married kind of a lowly man in society, and so he had disinherited his family. So Robert and his mom and their family were destitute. 
So as soon as he was able, around the age of 15, Robert was apprenticed to a barber in order to support the family. But like a lot of teenage kids, he got involved with the wrong crowd of kids, a group of rowdy kids. They would heckle people and do all kinds of horrible things in the streets of, of England. And, and one time, they come upon a drunken gypsy. And they begin to pour alcohol on the gypsy and they're poking fun and they're, they're harassing this gypsy when the gypsy pointed... Uh, her finger at each of these kids and they said well tell us our fortunes and she pointed at Robert and she said you are going to live a long life you're going to see your kids and your grandkids and strangely that court that that shook him and he began to think well wait a minute if I'm going to live a long life if I'm going to live to see my grandkids then I can't continue living this way but it was kind of a slow turn for him in life December 10th 1755, Robert and his pals went to go heckle a Methodist minister by the name of George Whitfield. So they enter a service, they're getting ready to heckle him, but they're listening as Whitfield preaches from Matthew chapter 3, where Jesus is saying, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? And Robert is mesmerized as Whitfield repeats this line over and over, oh, you hearers, the wrath to come, the wrath to come. And Robert leaves that place filled with dread over his sin. For three years, he wondered, he questioned, does this warrior God fight for me or against me? That question cuts through us, I think, when life hits us with devastation. We crawl to God And again, in verses 4 through 7, now you see a new protest arising from the people. Maybe you feel this protest as well. It is simply, clear the smoke, God. Look at verse 4. The psalmist writes, How long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You've made them drink tears by the bowlful. You've made us an object of derision to our neighbors. Our enemies mock us. Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Their land lay in ruins. I know if you look at the title of the psalm, it says this was to be sung to the tune of the lilies of the covenant. Boy, that sounds like a sweet sounding song, doesn't it? But don't let that fool you. Their land was devastated, pulverized. Houses were burned. Stores were destroyed and dismantled. Pasture lands were marred. The economy was sacked. They looked over the Judean border into their previous home back into Israel, and they knew where the warrior God was fighting. They knew who he was fighting against. They knew. And so they sang with their southern hosts, How long, Yahweh God of the armies? How long, warrior? They protested to him. His anger was smoldering. It's almost like there's a smoke that's obscuring his face, like their prayers are not getting through. It's like he's hidden behind the smoke. And maybe you feel that way as well. Maybe even today. You're wondering, is God fuming at me? Is he angry with me? Is he so angry he doesn't even see me anymore? All he sees is red. Now in verse 5 in the psalm, the people of Judah take up the song. It's like the people of Israel who've been devastated can't even continue to sing. And they sing, you have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. Or as one translator puts it, tears by the keg. (laughs) They're devastated. 
are you? I mean, as I think about our land and our lives in ways that are both large and small, I mean, this COVID virus, I looked this morning to be updated, has killed 122,000 Americans. That's more than the casualties from the U.S. in World War I. Almost 6,700 people have died in the state of Illinois alone. That's my hometown size. Gone. And in the midst of that, there are things like the, the tropical storm Cristobal who came through the southern states a couple of weeks ago and did $340 million worth of damage. Cities are reeling as people are, are angered and rage at the death of African Americans and, and other nations are even sort of laughing at the division in our country. We began the year fearing World War III with Iran. Do you remember that? I guess somebody should have told us we should be more afraid of Civil War too, or the Great Depression too. Does the warrior God fight for us? Or against us? Is, is he so angry that his fuming hides his face? I heard here about a week ago, a little boy in our church family, he was fuming as well. He was, he was angry, he was upset, he felt no one was paying him attention, you know, being sort of locked in his home, felt like prison isolation and siblings and, and, and mom and dad and everybody, and he, he just sort of lashed out, he protested. I mean, what do you do when you don't feel like you're getting attention paid? And so mom roused to him and his need, and uh, grandma began calling him every evening, hear about his day, to begin to pray for him. And suddenly, he was seen through all the smoke of our world on fire. Suddenly, the, the bowl full of tears transformed into a shining face and he skipped across the living room and mom was glad. And that's what the people in this psalm want, right? Can you blame them? The shepherd of Israel has fed them the bread of tears, they say. Now, what kind of a shepherd is that? Well, I'll tell you what kind it is. It's a warrior God set against them. And yet, the paradox of this poem keeps pulling me back. These people are clinging to a God who they think also has caused their tears. They're struggling with the question we all struggle with from time to time. Does this warrior God fight for us or against us? And while we vacillate over that question, we we often stroll through our past to look for evidence of where God is and what he's doing. And we work up to this final petition that I see here in the psalm, which is to turn back God. It sounds a little strange, but, but the people of Israel and Judah now, as they, as they think about their history, begin to turn back the clock and they ask God to, to be with them again. In verse 8, they begin to recount their history. He says, uh, you transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reached as far as the sea, its shoots as far as the river. Now, that is a giant beanstalk right there. Jack has nothing on this warrior God. But see, the the vine represents the people of God. And they begin to recount their own history, how they, they... God came into Egypt in their slavery. He dug out the vine there gently. 
And he, he carried it tenderly to a land filled with milk and honey, a beautiful place. He cleared away the land. He, he shooed away the aggressors. He, he planted it there. And it grew, and it grew, and it grew, and it outgrew the cedars, and it outgrew the, the mountains so that every mountain slope was filled with its glory. Reminds me a little bit of a, of a vine I've got in my own backyard right now. For several years, we've had a vine that kind of grew up this trellis. It provided shade. It was pretty. And then here recently, it has just gotten out of control. I cut it back this spring because it has started growing under the siding in my house. It started growing under the concrete patio in my backyard into Jody's flowers everywhere. It's popping up all over the yard. I have cut it out, but it, it just goes everywhere. And the people of Israel were much the same. They, they remember being extended from the sea, from the Mediterranean Sea, all the way to the Euphrates River. They grew everywhere. The warrior God did all of this. But now, it seems like a waste. It seems like God has gone against his own vine, like he's cutting it out. Verse 12, they ask God, Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it. Insects from the fields feed on it. The, the history lesson now turns sharp and bitter all of a sudden. It went from you, God, transplanted. You drove out. You cleared the ground. You fight for us to... You've broken down its walls. You fight against us. And they blame God when the Assyrian nations come in and attack them. God didn't protect them. They believe he left their vine without a wall so that every Tom, Dick, and Harry coming by can pick of their grapes and every wild animal can tear it to pieces. And you begin to wonder, why does this makes no sense? I mean, why in the world would someone go to the incredible uh, trouble of transplanting a vine from Egypt into another nation and clearing the ground and if in the end all they're going to do is break down its protection and let it go to the beasts. Maybe you're wondering that as well. Why would God go to the trouble of putting us in this position, even as a church family, blessing us, caring for us for 75 plus years, helping us get through some hellish times together as a church family, only to let the earth open up and swallow everybody right now. Why in the world would God fight for us and scrap and claw his kingdom coming in your life and in the lives of your friends and family, sacrificing every inch in the way only to watch it all snap back now? And maybe this is personal for you. Maybe you've seen friends in your life and you've wondered, why would God open the door for the gospel in their life? Why would they show an interest in Jesus or the church just a little bit? Getting past lots of painful things in their, their past and sin and seduction and then to watch them wallow back into sin, back into alcoholism again and drugs again and pornography again and bad relationships again and again. We begin to cry out, God, you gave everything to help them. Now it's all a waste. Why is this happening? And the question is natural. Is this warrior God fighting for us or against us? At the age of 20, Robert Robinson felt like God was fighting for him for the first time in his life. He gave his life to Jesus. He wrote a letter to George Whitfield, the, the pastor of the church he heard, describing his peace in believing. He began to read the scriptures and to pray and to grow in his relationship with God. He was even invited to preach at a church several years later. 
He eventually became a preacher in a Methodist church and then a Baptist one. He helped one congregation grow to over a thousand people in attendance. Throughout his life, he wrote books of theology. He wrote biblical translations. He wrote histories of the church. But perhaps he's best known for a song that he wrote as a new believer. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. For decades he proclaimed the love of Christ. But then, in 1790, towards the end of his life, he hit a wall. And the walls of his heart broke down. He wore out. He resigned from preaching. He became very unstable, unhappy. He left the Christian church. He felt like God was fighting against him. And and maybe you felt that before. You understand, for instance, I think, the cry in verse 14 of this psalm. Return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Literally, they're saying, turn around, God of the angel armies. You're facing the wrong direction. I bet you know the anguish of verse 18. Revive us and we will call on your name. Literally, God, make us alive, warrior God. We're dead here. Are you seeing this? You know the despair of verse 16. Your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. And I guess that's it. That answers it, doesn't it? That when you look at the ruin and devastation in life, Especially on a day like Father's Day, when you look at, at some of the, the, the problems with deadbeat dads and dropout dads and burned out dads and daddy issues and father wounds and all of those things, you begin to wonder, is this warrior God, Father God, fighting for us or against us? Oh, we know. We know, don't we? And then there's this prayer in verse 17. In the midst of all this anguish, the psalmist prays, Let your hand, God, rest on on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. And of course, Asaph, the psalm writer, he was referring to the king. God, help the king, bless the king in the midst of this mess. But we have one at the right hand of God far more powerful. We have the son of God we're aware of, the one John the Baptist described in Matthew 3 as one coming after me who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire. He is the one who, having disarmed the powers and authorities, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He's the one who, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. He is the one called faithful and true with justice. He judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. His name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressing in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the one who has placed our sin upon his shoulders. He has cried our bowl full of tears. He's felt our anguish and our despair. He has wrestled our death into the grave and God raised him up 
God did this, the warrior God, and it blew the world away. Especially the Apostle Paul, who thinking about that wrote these words years later. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you hear those little words? For us. Jesus proves once and for all that God is for us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Robert Robinson did at one point in his life, but by the end of his life, he did not. Just like the last stanza of his famous hymn, the last stanza of his life sounded something like this. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And that's what he did. But there's a widely told story at the end of his life where Robert was getting in a stagecoach to leave town. And as he was traveling, there was another uh, person in that stagecoach, a young woman, who was bored from the travel and the tedious monotonous nature of it, and she began to sing a song to pass the time. Can you imagine what song she began to sing? She sang, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Tune tune my heart to sing thy grace. (laughs) She sang that whole song, and she asked him what he thought of the hymn. And the story goes that Robert said, Madam, I am the unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I, if I had them, if I could feel now as I felt then. We don't know what happened in the rest of that conversation or even in the rest of his life. We do know that Robert passed away on June 9th, 1790, not long after that trip. But before he passed away, he came back to the church and he preached a final sermon in which he called Jesus a person infinitely lovely as both God and man. He discovered again the warrior worth fighting for, the warrior fighting for him. Shouldn't we find that same warrior again? It's time, church, you see, to pray to this warrior God. Even if the devastation feels real all around us, even you feel the anguish and the despair, it's time. It's time, dads, to get down on our knees and to, to surrender ourselves to this warrior God. It's time to intercede for those around us who are hurting right now, to those who have lost jobs, to those who have lost patience, to those who have lost faith. It's time to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. It's time to put the full armor of God on so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's time to pray, restore us, Lord God Almighty, Lord God of hosts. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. And it's time to pray because this warrior God is on our side. We have nothing to lose and his kingdom to gain. So what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? Let's pray together right now. Lord God Almighty, God of hosts, warrior God, fight for us these days. Help us to be a people battling the the darkness around us. Help us to be a church, though scattered in many different places, to be unified in your spirit, to find your kingdom coming in places we never expected. 
And Lord Jesus, thank you for your victory. Thank you for the cross, the grave, and the resurrection that proves you battle through all chaos, even death itself, and you come out victorious. You promise that same victory for us as we follow you, as we trust in you. We pray now in your name. Amen.